Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. The message of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 65, verses 17 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem to be, and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. There has been a debate raging amongst my co-workers for the past week or so. Raging might be a little strong of a word, but it, it sounds dramatic and will get you to pay attention, I guess. Uh, and so I will share that debate with you this morning so that you can maybe uh, consider where you would fall on the spectrum and maybe evaluate your Christmas plans accordingly. But the debate has centered around what is the best type of gift to try to receive at Christmas. Would you rather have a gift that is just very practical, just something that you really need and addresses that specific need, or do you want something that is totally out of left field, something you never would have bought for yourself that you weren't expecting but that you love, something extravagant? Now obviously I am very biased in the midst of this debate and so can't weigh in fully, fairly. I mean Isaac and I have worked together for so long, um, but that was a joke. I, sorry, I, I thought that would land better than it did. But uh, I will uh, try to present the case as evenly as I can and allow you to think about it a little bit before I, I weigh in and break the tie. But on the one hand, Isaac makes the case that it, it is a major letdown to uh, get something that you just need, that you know about, that you're expecting for Christmas. Because there's no element of surprise to it, there's no excitement. If you want to get something practical, that's fine and good, but don't go through all the trouble of wrapping it and then having to unwrap it, because it's just kind of a big letdown. 
really the main takeaway through all of this is that if, if you're getting Isaac a Christmas gift, which maybe you're still planning on buying him something before Christmas is over, the worst thing you could buy him would be to get him some socks for two reasons. Number one, he would get depressed opening them, and number two, he would never wear them anyways. Um, and so that is one side of the debate. And on the other hand, Whitney has made the case that there's nothing wrong with any kind of practical gift or anything like that. If someone has a specific thing that they want or need and you know about it and you get that for them, that's a a good thing for them. You go through all the work of wrapping it to make it look good and uh, they can enjoy that moment and you know for a fact that it's something they are going to appreciate and, and use. And I have to say, uh, I agree with her argument. And I'm not just saying that I feel obligated to say that because I'm married to her. I, I think she has a good point for a few reasons. I mean, as the person receiving the gift, you know it's something you want and need, and so that's well and good. But as the person giving the gift, you also have the, uh, the peace going into it that there's no moment of anxiety that as they open the gift of wondering, are they going to like this? Is this going to be awkward? You, don't, you know you're not going to get a moment of them opening the gift and giving you like the 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 obligatory like oh great thanks you know this I'm never going to use this but but thanks for the Christmas gift uh, it really takes the pressure off I feel like and so really maybe my you can think about that and decide where you land in this debate maybe my main overarching point of all of this is that Christmas for me and Whitney ideally is as boring as we can make it maybe that's the overall point here I'm not sure and I don't know what Christmas gift giving or receiving has looked like for you and your family this year, if you've got all your presents open already and you're ready to get home and enjoy them, or if you're just wanting me to wrap this up so you can get home and start opening the presents as soon as you do. But I tell you about that conversation uh, because gifts have been on our minds, I think, to an extent over the past few weeks, whether you're making your Christmas list or you're trying to figure out what to buy all the people in your life, um, especially today. And because as we get to the end of the book of Isaiah this morning, we find Um, the final gift that God is offering to his people coming through his son, Jesus. We started this series a few weeks ago looking at Isaiah chapter 40 where God promises that he will send someone who will come and will deliver his people. And then we looked at chapter 53 and we saw a little more of that picture where we saw that uh, the solution to all the suffering and the injustice in our world is the arrival of this servant who will come and will suffer on behalf of God's people so that they might be made new. And last week we looked at Isaiah 55. We saw that God desires to bring healing to his people, and that healing comes fully in the story of Christmas. And so to conclude this series today, we are going to look at the last section of this book, a few verses in Isaiah 65 that Rick has just read for us, and we are given a glimpse of what the end of this story is looks like. This deliverance that God has promised to bring through this suffering servant, the healing that we long for in the midst of a broken world, it all comes to a culmination where we get to the end of this book and find restoration waiting for us and all of God's creation. And it might seem like an odd passage to look at on Christmas Day, but I think it is appropriate to see the end of the story, to see where the story of Christmas is headed. And I think it's appropriate to think of these, this passage of Scripture as a gift. A gift that fulfills every criteria we could ever imagine. 
It's a gift that I think both Isaac and Whitney could get on board with. It's a gift that is extravagant, something beyond what we ever could have imagined or thought of or acquired for ourselves, and yet at the same time, it is a gift that is practical, more practical than we could ever imagine. It is exactly what we need. As God promises to restore all things, and that restoration is made fully available because God has sent his son, this child, to be a child of restoration for us and ultimately for our entire world. So in the time we have this morning, I want to spend some time looking at how Isaiah describes this restoration and reflect on what that restoration means for us. Because the message of these verses is a glimpse at the end of time where God has restored all things. And it begins with this promise that God will make all things new, so much so that all the things that have come before will no longer be, for, be remembered. Like a mother forgetting about the pain of childbirth because of the joy they experience when they see that newborn baby, God says when he makes all things new, none of the pains of this life will even be remembered. There's a moment in the Lord of the Rings where Sam Gamgee asks the question, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer to that question, based on a verse like Isaiah 65, 17, is absolutely yes. The joy that awaits God's people is so grand that it will completely drown out the imperfections of life we have known before. All the hurts and problems we experience, the death, the suffering, the injustice of our world, it will one day be done away with because God will make all things new. And to help us get a sense of what that restoration is going to look like, Isaiah gives us a series of images. In verse 20, we see it is a restoration that leads to everlasting life. In the restored creation, there's no such thing as premature death. There are no stillborn babies. There are no people being cut down in the prime of their life by cancer and car accidents. There is everlasting life. Life to the full enjoyed in the presence of the God who creates and sustains all life. And as this scene is being described, it's probably worth clarifying that Isaiah does not seem to be describing literal ages. When he says there at the end of verse 20 that someone who dies at the age of 100 will be considered a curse, he doesn't seem to be saying that there will be people who die in God's new creation. If you read in other places in Isaiah, in a place like chapter 25, Isaiah is describing God's restored creation, and in that God says as a part of that he will abolish death forever. And so it would be odd uh, for there to be death in this restored creation at the end of the book. Instead, Isaiah seems to be making a statement about the quality of life enjoyed in God's restored creation. It is a life enjoyed with no hindrances, no tragedies. It will be so incredible, so joyous, so blessed and everlasting that even if someone were to die at the age of 100, an age that in our world is is about as far as someone can live, we tend to think. It's a life that must have been full with all kinds of things that happened. And Isaiah says that in God's restored creation, only living a hundred years would be a tragedy. We, the life that we would consider as full as you could imagine looks like a great loss compared to the life that God has in store for his people in his restored creation. And that is the hope of restoration. No missing out. No wondering what could have been. All the things God has desired for his people fully 
brought about and experienced. And that thought continues in verses 21 and 22, where Isaiah says that because of that everlasting life, we are able to fully enjoy the fruit of our labors. That might not be something we would consider as significant right away, but I think it matters. Isaiah says that in God's restored creation, people will build houses and actually be able to dwell in them, enjoying the fruit of their labor. I think about my grandparents. Uh, my grandparents renovated their house after my grandpa retired, and, and at that point, their house became everything they had hoped it would be when they were married as a young couple and started building that house. And about five years after they finished all those renovations, my grandma died. She only got to enjoy everything their house was supposed to be for those five years or so. And stories like that don't happen, and God's restored creation. Isaiah says that people will plant vineyards and be able to enjoy their fruit. Vineyards take a long time to plant and to grow and to nurture so that, so that they will finally produce a crop. And so you're only able to have a good flourishing vineyard if things are stable and good and well for an extended period of time. And even if you go through all of that, all the struggle, there, there will come a day, assuming everything goes well, where you will be gone and someone else will be there to enjoy the fruit of your labor. When Whitney and I were on our honeymoon, we came across this massive tree that takes up an entire city block. It was the biggest tree I've ever seen. And they have plaques and things describing it. And it was planted on April 24th, 1873, just less than a decade after the end of the Civil War. And so it's amazing to think about. Next year, it'll be 150 years since that tree was planted. That's a lot of human history that has happened in that time. That is a lot of generations of life that have passed. And if you think about it, the people who planted that tree are long gone. The people who have worked maybe years and years and years to make that tree grow and flourish and all that goes into that, they maybe got to see bits and pieces of the fruit of their labor. They got to see the tree grow during their lifetime, but no one has lived long enough to be able to see everything from the planting of that tree to everything that it is today and beyond. It it goes beyond the realm of human life. And Isaiah says, stories like that don't happen in God's restored creation. We will not spend years on a project only for someone else to come in and enjoy the results. Nothing will be wasted. No one will be exploited. God's people will enjoy their work in the presence of God for all eternity. And yet even there stops a little short because I don't think Isaiah is just saying that in the new heavens and new earth, hard work gets rewarded as it should be. He's making a statement about sin being done away with. Back in Deuteronomy 28, towards the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is laying out the terms of God's covenant for his people at the end of Moses' life. And as he is walking through all this in Deuteronomy 28, he gives a long line of blessings and curses. He walks through, here is what will happen. Here are the blessings you will experience. If you are obedient to God, if you do what he says, this is what life will look like. And if don't, if you reject what God says, these are the curses that will come about. And as Moses is walking through the list of all those curses in Deuteronomy 28, one of the things he says is that if you disobey God, if you sin against him, if you reject his ways, what you will experience is you will build houses, and you won't be able to dwell in them, and you'll plant vineyards, and you won't be able to enjoy its fruit. And now, 
as Isaiah is giving us a glimpse of God's restored creation, he's making a statement about God doing away with the curse of sin. So much of this book of Isaiah focuses on judgment, God saying that his people will experience the consequences of their disobedience, just as he had lined out through Moses way back in the book of Deuteronomy, but now at the end of the story, the judgment has passed. The curses have been undone. Sin has been dealt with. God has healed this relationship that was broken. He has brought his people into the kind of life that he has always desired for them. He has done all of that so that he might come near. There in verse 24, it says that that in the new heavens and new earth, God will answer his people even before they make their request. Which if you think about, being able to answer someone's request before they even say anything out loud requires a degree of both physical proximity and relational proximity. You have to both be physically close to the person and you have to know them well enough to know what they're going to say before they say it to be able to attend to requests in that way. I mean, someone can be physically close to you, but if they don't know you at all, they can't understand your, your uh, quirks, your mannerisms and things to understand what you need. Maybe you've been at a restaurant and you're not quite done eating yet and the waiter comes by and tries to take your plate from you. They're physically close to you, but they're not relationally close enough to you to be able to tell that you're not done eating yet. Or you can be relationally close to someone, uh, like a, a parent with a child, but if and you can have that sort of relationship to where you know your child so well, you know what they're going to say before they say it, and, and can attend to those needs as quickly as possible. But if you're across the room from them, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that you can tell what they need if you're 50 feet away from them. You have to close that physical gap before you can attend to that need. And here in Isaiah, we hear that God has closed both the physical and relational distance so that he can care for his people in his restored creation. He is aware of the needs of his people and able to attend to them immediately. He has mended brokenness so that there might be a perfect close relationship between him and his people and between his people and one another. All the sin that currently separates humanity and God will one day be done away with so that he can dwell with his people fully. And because that is the case, there will be safety. The things we fear will be gone. I mean, picture the scene Isaiah describes in verse 25. He says, a wolf and a lamb are eating a meal together as opposed to a wolf pursuing a lamb as its meal, as we would typically think. A lion is not a predator stalking other animals, but is grazing on straw like an ox. There's no harm or destruction to be found anywhere. God has made all things new. All things are at peace. All things are existing underneath his perfect reign. If you were here with us last night, as you were hearing verse 25 read, you might have thought that it sounds very familiar to some of the verses from Isaiah chapter 11 that we read during our Christmas Eve service last night. Because in chapter 11, we also get a description of a wolf and a lamb dwelling together. We get a description of a lion grazing on straw like an ox. But this time, there's a little detail added. If you notice, if you have a Bible open in front of you, you can notice right there in the middle of verse 25, there is a reference to a serpent. 
In the midst of all this restoration, Isaiah says, and dust will be the serpent's food. That might seem like an, like an odd note. It seems kind of negative compared to everything else, all the glory and grandeur of this chapter compared to this, a serpent eating dust. It would seem like everything has been changed in the new creation except for this serpent. And that seems to be the point. If you remember all the way back to the beginning of your Bible, in Genesis chapter 3, sin was introduced into the world through a serpent tempting Adam and Eve. And after this has happened, God is announcing that humanity and all creation is now cursed because they have rejected the life God had for them. In the midst of all of that, he curses the serpent as well. He says in Genesis 3, 14, Because you have done this, God speaking to the serpent, Cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And that's maybe a hint for us that the serpent Isaiah is describing is not just a run-of-the-mill garden snake. This is the serpent. The one who has been scheming to stop the plans of God and his people from the beginning. And because of that, the serpent has been cursed by God. And now here in Isaiah 65, in the midst of everything being restored, that curse is still in place because that curse is not about the serpent. It's about the sin and brokenness that the serpent introduced into creation. Part of God dealing with the curse of sin is cursing that serpent finally and permanently. One commentator says that the only point in the whole of the new creation where there is no change is in the curse pronounced on sin, which still stands. All this restoration is possible because the serpent has been finally defeated for all time all enemies and oppositions to God and his people have been done away with and that same commentator I just quoted continues and summarizes this scene by saying death will have no more power and sin no more present presence that is the hope that awaits God's people that is what we fix our eyes upon So if that's the image of the future Isaiah calls us to at the end of this book how does that change how we celebrate Christmas this afternoon Well, this passage gives us a glimpse of the future. And that glimpse of the future should inform how we live in the present. Because the glimpse of the future we get here, if you notice, is real and tangible. Isaiah does not paint a portrait of some vague idea of floating on clouds and playing harps. It's a real restoration of this creation, of healing to all things. He gives us images that we are familiar with, only they have been transformed into something far beyond what we have ever seen or known in this life. And what that means for us is that the future we look forward to as we live right now is a real, tangible reality. God does not call us to just tolerate this world for as long as we can, all the while looking forward to that day when we'll get to leave this place and go somewhere different. That is not the hope we believe in. We believe in a hope that is the complete fulfillment of God's purposes for his people coming to fruition here on this earth. We do not believe in escaping this world. We believe in God restoring this world into everything it was meant to be. And that is the image Isaiah calls us towards. Time and time again, he warns against idolatry. He calls his readers to trust in God and God alone, promising that if you do not, there will be judgment. But if you do, if you will trust in God 
He will deliver you. He will heal you. He will restore you. And now he is offering us a glimpse of what that looks like. Isaiah is not calling us to cleanse ourselves from the terrible things of this world to get ready for something different down the road. He is calling us to get rid of the things that lead to death here and now so that we are ready for the everlasting life that God will one day bring about in this restored creation. This is the future that awaits us. God restoring his good creation, his good creation that we had ruined through our rebellion, but being restored into everything it was created to be. And because that is the future that awaits us, we should be filled with hope. We can live in this world with joy no matter what might be thrown at us because God's people know that the worst this world has to throw at us is not the end of the story. We look ahead to the fulfillment of this vision, a day when all things will be restored and we will be with the Lord forever. Yet the future that does await us is even better than the portrait Isaiah paints because it gets fleshed out even more by John at the end of the book of Revelation. In Revelation 21.1, John writes that he sees a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth have passed away. Language lifted straight out of Isaiah 65. So if we are asking ourselves how we reach this new heaven and new earth that Isaiah was looking towards, we see in Revelation that it is reserved for those who have put trust in Jesus in the Lamb who was slain on our behalf. In other words, this restored creation is for those who have put their hope in the message of Christmas. Life with God and the restored creation is possible because this child was born so that we might be set free from brokenness and sin and death and we might live with him. This child has come. So that the future of Isaiah 65, the future of Revelation 21 and 22, might be our future as well. As I've been reading and reflecting on both Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22, I've been reminded of one of the ladies in our church whose funeral I officiated last year. And I, and I did not know her as well or as long as so many of you did, but I will never forget that the last time Rick and I went to visit her, not long before she passed away, we read Revelation 21 and 22 over her. As John describes the new heavens and the new earth, all creation restored to what it was originally designed to be. God's people dwelling in God's presence forever. Now I am sure that if an outside observer were to look at that scene, it might seem a little odd. Two preachers sitting with a woman who would not live much longer, reading about a city that comes out of the sky and it's covered in precious metals and it has no sun or sea and there is a tree in the middle of the city and it bears fruit every month somehow. A cynic looking at that scene could see it all as very escapist, longing for something different, just wishing the story would indifferently. And I'm here to tell you that nothing could have been further from the truth. We were not sitting at the end of that story wishing that it had a different ending. We were looking at where the story truly ends. We were sitting in the middle of the brokenness of that story, knowing that the story was not over. The brokenness of this creation 
that is broken because of sin. It was wreaking havoc in that moment, as it does in almost every moment of every day. But we were proclaiming in the midst of that havoc that sin and death would not have the last word. The serpent would one day be defeated completely. All will one day be made new. Everything sad will come untrue. And that is what we fix our eyes on. I hope that is what you fix your eyes on in the midst of your Christmas celebrations as you look forward to what is to come. Because as we celebrate the birth of this child, we should not forget where this story is headed, for this child or for us. He's come to restore all things. He's come to put an end to our suffering and our disease. He's come to redeem us out of the mess we had made for ourselves and into life with him. He has come to bring us hope. He started that work with the story of Christmas when he came the first time. He was born and died and rose again. And he will come again to bring complete restoration. And in the meantime, we trust in him. We are faithful in the present because of this image of the future we are offered. So we put our hope in him. We look forward to the redemption that he is bringing. And we participate in that vision of restoration, even today. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the hope we have because of your Son. That in the midst of brokenness and despair that you have not left us alone. That you have promised to one day make all things new. To heal our brokenness, our addictions, our diseases, our broken relationships with you and with one another. We remember, we celebrate that. We thank you for the hope we have in your son. God, we ask that you would help us to be formed by that hope, whether we've never experienced it or need to be reminded of it this morning. God, form us by the hope of your son as we look forward to the day when these images that Isaiah gives us come true. In the meantime, Father, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. We hope that you are encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.